Good morning, church, or good whatever part of the day it is that you happen to be watching. If you have your Bible, please open up to the 10th chapter of Ecclesiastes. That's where we'll be today. And I do hope that you guys are doing well in these strange times, these unprecedented times. And I have a few things to say about the times that we're in before we actually get to the text, but I think you'll see they're not totally disconnected at all. So what we've been doing so far as meeting for Sundays and providing a sermon and music is not ideal, but we're making the best out of a situation that I truly believe God has us in. We're trying to provide something good, not to replace the normal worship, but to remind us to keep our eyes on Christ at these times. And these digital meetings and video messages are surely a blessing. You know, if this pandemic would have happened in the 80s, None of this would even be possible. So in a, in a weird roundabout way, it's a mercy of the Lord that it has happened now when it did, when it has. But I, I really cannot wait to be with you all together in person. It's really weird right now speaking to an empty room. I don't know if I should look at the chairs, if I should look at the camera, what, what is the best thing to do here. It's good, of course, that we are practicing social distancing because we don't want anyone to be put in harm's way. But hopefully, we'll be able to come back together pretty soon. And when that happens, it's going to have to be a celebration. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. We'll have a barbecue and a potluck. It'll be a a feast of thanksgiving to the Lord because we can gather again. And you probably have heard by now that the shelter-in-place orders have actually been extended into the month of May. We were initially hoping that they were going to be over by this upcoming week and that they would allow us to meet on on this upcoming Sunday or the following Sunday on Easter Resurrection Sunday. But since the order has been extended, it is apparent that we're not going to be able to legally gather next week. And church, I wanted to encourage you in that and to and to offer you hope to not be dismayed because you're missing Resurrection Sunday and not able to gather. I The reality is, is that missing that Sunday is no different than missing any of these other Sundays that we have missed together. They're all equally lamentable. Every Lord's Day is a day that we get to gather on, and we remember on that day the life, the death, and the resurrection of our Lord Christ Jesus. That's not just something for Easter. We would love to have been able to meet with you again this upcoming next Sunday, but it doesn't appear to be that way right now, Lord willing at least. And who knows, things have been changing fast. Maybe it will. We'll be sure to let you know. But it's important to remember that right now, we are not gathered as a church. The ecclesia, the assembled body, is not assembling in the flesh. We are scattered. And this is true not just here in the States, but in local churches all across the world right now. Nearly every country, this is happening. But this is no reason to fear or to lose hope, brothers and sisters. We confess that God is sovereign and that all things happen according to the counsel of God's will. Everything that happens, happens because God has ordained it to be so. And so we must then confess that this pandemic is a dark providence of the Lord. This is not something that is happening by chance. Isaiah 45, 7 reads, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. That's what the Lord confesses in Isaiah 45. 
So then ultimately it is God and not governments of the world that have brought the Lord's Day services to a halt. It is ultimately God who is bringing the economies of the world to a slow halt. And what will happen in the coming days and weeks and months, we don't know for sure. I do not know. Many people are speculating, but we can't yet say for sure what is happening and why it is that this judgment has come upon us. God may never reveal all of his purposes to us about this event on this side of eternity even, but what he does tell us will certainly be sufficient. But church, it is good that we know that God is ultimately behind all of these things because our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in the government and the medical officials to make things right. God may use them as he's using them now even, and we must pray for them, but our hope is in God himself. Our trust is in God. And further, there there is no speculation about these events, when they will end or, or what will happen in the future with God. He knows what is happening right now and what will happen every day, ever. God is not in the dark about anything concerning this crisis. He knows what the end of all of this is. And none of this is an accident or outside of his plan. But how do we respond? That has been your elder's concern through this, a major concern of ours, one of them at least. None of us is outside of this event. We're all experiencing the effects of this crisis in similar ways, and some of us in different ways. But how do we respond? There is more than one right answer. But my prayer in in this, in much of this, is that we will not be numbered among those who miss what the Lord is teaching us at this time. How do we prevent that? How do we not miss those things that the Lord is wanting to teach us? And depending upon the person, it might be a number of things or, or different things, depending on who it is that the Lord is working on in this time. Well, I'll tell you, church, it's not that difficult. But apart from the grace of God, it will be impossible for us to, to know what it is that he is teaching us. By the grace of God, we will not miss what God is wanting to teach us if we keep our eyes on Christ. If we continue to look to Jesus in this time, if the cross of Christ remains the object of our preaching, if Christ and him crucified for our sins remains the focus for us in this trial, we'll we'll be able, by the grace of God, to know what it is the Lord is wanting to teach us through this trial. But we can't take our eyes off of Christ at a time like this, church. The news is vying for your attention Entertainment is vying for your attention. Our finances are vying for our attention. Be sure to be praying for your brothers and sisters and their employment. Many of us are coming under thin times right now. And entertainment and the news, those aren't bad things, but don't neglect to give your attention to Christ. He and not the comforts of this world will be your refuge. Listen to what Psalm 212 says says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, this is, a, this is a strange time for us as a nation. But regardless, Christ is a refuge for us. Because of that, I would encourage you, try to be charitable to one another when you discuss the current events. I'm seeing so many people verbally attack people and shaming people who are going outside right now. And then also, 
The other side is verbally attacking those who want to stay in, and they're accusing them of potentially living in fear. And you end up getting a lot of heat from these things, but not a whole lot of light. And so let's not, for Christ's sake, fall into either of those ditches, friends. Let's be known for being charitable to one another, especially as this thing continues and potentially even gets worse for who knows how long. You know, we need to be mindful of our Christian witness in this time. We don't know all of God's purposes in this, but we do know that he has allowed it to happen, and therefore we can say with confidence it is for his glory. So we should be slow to complain about everything that is happening. And I'm speaking about myself in this too. The Puritan pastor Thomas Watson said this. He said, Learn quietly to submit to divine providence. Do not murmur at the things that are ordered by divine wisdom. Uh, Job and his friends know something about this, don't they? Whatever it is that God is doing right now, we know that he is accomplishing his will. And our place is to trust him as it folds out and then to continue to look to him and to find Christ as a sure refuge through it all. Now, it just so happens that our passage today for this morning is very applicable to the matters we have before us with this COVID-19 crisis. I've actually listened to a number of sermons. Uh, that's, I normally would do that anyways, but listen to maybe extra sermons since this crisis has happened. And in nearly every one of those sermons since this pandemic began, they ended up quoting from Ecclesiastes. So the Lord had us much ahead of the curve, it would seem, when it comes to placing us in this book over these last few months. There is much wisdom for pilgrims in this valley as we traverse the way to Zion, friends. Now, the section that we are specifically in, we've been in for the last three weeks, and in it, Kohelet, the preacher, has been teaching us how we might respond in wisdom rather than in foolishness to different scenarios. And the reality is this. Foolishness, it abounds in our life. Sin consumes the lost. Remember Psalm 14:1, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. So we aren't surprised when the lost acts foolishly, but believers are not exempt from this as well. Our flesh remains, we struggle against it and the world and the devil, and every time we fail to obey the Lord, we act foolish. Now this passage, or I should say passages, that we are considering this morning are in regard to our response to rulers. Wisdom in response to rulers or in regard to rulers. Uh, the Christian's reaction to seek to the civil magistrate. And there's a lot of room for us to be foolish in this category, isn't there? But Solomon is going to encourage us to respond to rulers in such a way that God might be honored. Now, if you remember, we've been taking this, this section, um, we've been taking verses within this whole, this larger proverbial section, wisdom section, and then dealing with the similar topics together, meaning we've had to jump around the chapter a little bit, and we'll be doing that once more. But it makes sense to me to simply read all of the passages that we have for us today in order in the way that they come, and then we'll individually take each section and applications for them as we hit them in order. So let's read the text now, and after we read it, we'll ask the Lord to bless our time through prayer. So this is Ecclesiastes chapter 10. The reading of God's word, beginning at verse 4. 
If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Then verse 16. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time. Then verse 20. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. That ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful to you for sustaining and preserving your word for us, that even though we may not be able to gather together right now, we are able to open it up individually, to have it in our own language. And we ask, Lord, that you would impart to us from it wisdom and understanding, that you would make us to be sanctified, and that you would further along our discipleship for Christ's glory's sake. Teach us how to live, Lord, especially in this time that is so new to us. But we, are, we take great comfort in knowing that it's not new to you, Lord. Nothing surprises you. You are our hope and our refuge, and to you be the glory this day. In Christ's name, amen. So, it makes, it makes the most sense to me to take the passages in the order that Solomon gave them in, in this chapter. And there's, there's not really a single thought that's being carried throughout them. There's these individual thoughts and then one main general thought, which I already mentioned, which is that there is a right way that we can respond to rulers that will honor God. But in each section, in section 4 to 7, and then in 16 to 17, and then in verse 20, there are in, they are in fact teaching us something specific when it comes to our reaction to those in power. So first let's consider the opening section. It's verses 4 to 7. And in this section we're going to break it up into two parts. We'll look at verse 4 by itself first and then we'll consider 4 and 7 as a unit. So verse 4, again it said, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Keeping your head is important, isn't it, friends? There is certainly a real fear for us to be had when the wrath of a ruler potentially comes against you. We might remember how it was that Pharaoh dealt with his chief baker back in Genesis. It didn't end well for that man, did it? The anger of the ruler rose against him, and he was picked apart by birds, we read. And it would be easy to think of countless examples, not only in the word, but in the world, in which a ruler's anger is on display. But what if it comes against you? What if it comes against you and your family? How is a Christian to react when the civil magistrate, when your government is, that is, when it's rising up against you in anger? What if they are rising up against you, but maybe not in obvious anger, maybe under the guise of, of something noble, but there's still anger and greed and motivation to harm underneath it? How do you respond in those cases? Well, maybe you think it depends. Is the ruler's anger justifiable or is it unwarranted? 
You know, earthly rulers are certainly not immune to foolishness. We see that in verses 5 to 7 and then in verse 16. And the government certainly can come against people with anger for no good cause. Uh, consider our, our brothers and sisters in China right now. There you have a government that is angry at, at her people for no good cause. It's an evil cause, to be precise. It is out of hatred for the gospel and the liberation that it brings to the sons of Adam, those in the kingdom of Adam, and it brings them out and places them into the kingdom of Christ. The persecution of the church there in China is no secret at all. It's been mentioned from this pulpit before. And as you know, the COVID-19 pandemic was a problem there in China before it was for us here in the States and other places of the world. And much of the church in China is already underground. They meet in secret because they don't want to register their congregations in the government because when they do them, the government imposes upon them what they can and what they cannot teach. And so these underground churches were taking advantage of technology just like we are so that the word of God can go forth despite of this crisis that is happening all across the world. Well, on February 23rd, 2020, the authorities in the Shandong province issued a statement that reads this. It says, number one, all live-streamed preaching should be stopped immediately. The TSPM and CCC, which are the governing authorities, in each city should notify churches promptly and carry it out. Two, some people still hold fellowship secretly. Please check for them earnestly in each jurisdiction, and the fellowships that meet without approval must be completely eradicated. Now, is the Chinese government just in doing this? Of course not. This is a wicked regime that is ruling China, and one of their goals is to eradicate Christianity from among the people. So how should they respond? What's the right reaction? Were the people doing anything wrong? Of course not. They're doing the best thing you could be doing with your time, exalting Christ. If they get caught, they have an opportunity to glorify Christ in their response. Turn with me to 1 Peter 3, there in the New Testament. First Peter 3, verses 13 to 17, have instruction for us here. It says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So notice a, a few things here, church. If you are zealous for what is good, which every Christian should be, right? There are none of you who have an unhindered desire to indulge your sin, correct? If you're zealous for what is good, there, generally speaking, is going to be no one to harm you. Generally speaking, that is the case. If you follow the laws the government has, you will not be harmed by the government. This is pretty basic, I think. We all understand this to a degree. If you, if you don't purposely make a mistake on filing your taxes, you, didn't, you need not worry about any wrath from the government. 
If you don't drive in the carpool lane all by yourself, you don't need to be anxious about getting a ticket. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? We, re- we read Romans 13, 1 through 7. Or I encourage you to read Romans 13, 1 through 7 as the call to worship for today. And in that section of Scripture, verse 3 of that passage says this, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? In authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. But there will be times when God's people will suffer for righteousness' sake. That's what you see with the persecution in the church, in China, and everywhere where she is persecuted. And what is Peter's instruction in this case? It's have no fear of them and do not be troubled. It's honor Christ in that situation. Excuse me. And for this example, it means continue to still meet. Continue to still declare the goodness of God and the hope of his gospel. Because this is a situation in which you must obey God and not man. And mind you, Peter's not just offering sentimental thoughts here. This isn't just some some pious platitude that he is speculating about. He has lived this very thing. You remember in Acts 5, Peter and John were out sharing the gospel in all of Judea. And then the Pharisees, the governing authorities, the high priests, they came against them and they arrested them. And Peter and the apostles famously declare at that point, we must obey God rather than men. He lived it out. And so you will have a good conscience when you do this, Peter says. And then notice how this passage ends there in verse 17. That's where he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The reaction, the Christian reaction in this case, when the civil magistrate oversteps the authority God has given, is to not rebel and take up the sword at this point, but to suffer for doing good. And notice, when a person suffers for doing good, is God somehow not involved? Are his hands tied and he is unable to intervene? No. Look at the text. It's if that should be God's will. If you end up having to suffer for doing good, it was God's will. You see, church, there is nothing in this life that is an accident. Nothing is without purpose because God is sovereign. Because the things that happen are the unfolding of his will. Like I was mentioning earlier, It means that we can have a sure hope in the midst of every trial, in the midst of a crisis like the one we are now going through, that God himself will be a refuge for us when we, by his grace, react rightly. This doesn't mean that governments are somehow off the hook. I mean, just because God is working his will through their evil desires, the reason for this is because God is over every government. He raises them up to accomplish his purposes and his redemptive and eschatological plans. Consider what God said to Pharaoh right before the seventh plague. It's one of the most clear and persuasive texts on the sovereignty of God in all of Scripture, I think. He says in verse 16 in chapter 9, But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And even though... God raised Pharaoh up. We know that he wasn't off the hook for his sin. Pharaoh wanted to disobey God, and so judgment came upon him there in the early chapters of Exodus. You see, 
those in power, earthly governments that is, are not simply free to just make up laws and, as that they want, and they're not free to supersede what God has said. The Swiss pastor, my, my friend shared this quote with me recently, Heinrich Bullinger from the 16th century, he wrote, Kings are not set as lords and rulers of the word and laws of God, but are as subjects to be judged by the word of God as they that ought to rule and govern all things according to the rule of his word and commandment. In other words, earthly rulers can't come over God's law and mandate that we obey them and disregard God. They are to govern, if they are to govern well, under the law of God. God's law is good. It is the standard in every generation. And don't miss that, please, because it is very common today to say that the Bible is antiquated, that the morality that it espouses is not for today, that we are enlightened and modern. But friends, that is a deception from the gates of hell. And if you believe that, if you believe that the Bible is antiquated and that what it says doesn't really apply to us, it was only for the morality and it was only for a generation previously, don't believe it. Because it it is as if the gates of hell are beckoning for you. So don't listen. When, when, when we don't come over God's law, God's law is over us. So our, our first consideration was, what if the ruler's anger is unjustified? But what if it is justified? Peter has something to say about that in 1 Peter 3. He mentions suffering for doing evil there. Again, governments are raised up for God's purposes. The Second use of the law is so that it would restrain evil. The government often has a hand in that. The Apostle Peter elaborates more on this in the preceding chapter, in chapter 2. So just turn a page over, or it might be on your same page even. Verse 13 in 1 Peter chapter 2 says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and then also honor the emperor. So we see that God sets up governments to punish evil and to praise those who do good. Romans 13 would be in agreement. Now, they don't always do that, of course, but generally speaking, this is the case. And since this is the case, when a government is not overstepping God's law, we should be subject to them. We are to honor the magistrate in those cases because in doing so, it shows that we fear God since God is the one who is truly sovereign, since God is the one who has elevated that kingdom. And there's application for us in 1 Peter 2 with this COVID-19 crisis. Let's consider the rest of verse 4 in chapter 10 in Ecclesiastes as I make application here. So if you remember... Verse 4 said, If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place for calmness. We'll lay great offenses to the rest. Now, first off, please do not share this verse on Facebook later because it's dealing with the government and we read that we are to not leave your place. 
Solomon isn't talking about a home isolation order here, okay? Neither is he talking about that in Isaiah 26 or Joshua chapter 1. Further, the reason as to why we have been ordered to shelter in place and seize worship is not because our government is angry with us. That, that is part of the case in China. Yes, that is true. But that is not the case here, not yet at least. What we have going on here with this pandemic and the social distancing concerns that it has brought with it is a situation more like what Romans 13 says and what 1 Peter 2 says. Our main reason for not gathering is because we see this as the will of God being accomplished, and so we freely obey the commands of the government to submit to them, And as we read in those passages. If the government was instructing us to not worship because they didn't like our gospel, well, then you know what we would do. We'd be together. We'd move underground. We'd continue to meet. But this current pandemic has nearly everything shut down, and it's basically worldwide. Now, so it's not just against the church. Now, this passage here in Ecclesiastes is not, is not instructing us to be pacifists. That's not it at all. What he's reminding us here is the fact that sometimes rulers will act foolishly. They may act in anger when anger is not appropriate. He's saying then that you, Christian, you need to be the level-headed person in the room. You need to be the one who is trusting that God is sovereign. You honor God when you don't respond to foolish leadership and then panic or you get angry yourself. That's what he means when he writes, do not leave your place. It's do not abandon who you are in Christ. Don't get caught up in your flesh. Proverbs 25, 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Solomon is telling us here in Ecclesiastes 10 to have self-control in light of a foolish ruler, to rest in the strength that Christ supplies in his gospel, knowing that whatever comes against you can only come against you if God wills it, if he should will it. But you can imagine, I think, the response that a person might have in an ancient context where there is no constitution to protect a person, there are no inalienable rights that a person has, it would be really easy to, work, to get worked up and to flee. But Solomon's advice is that we should not leave our place, that we are, should not abandon our position. Remember that we are to be subject for the Lord's sake to human institutions. Trust God then, friends, because a God-honoring response, which is calmness in this example, will lay great offenses to rest. It's proverbial, so it's not a guarantee. It's a general principle. But I ask you, is it better to obey God or your emotions? It's not really a hard question, is it? It's better to obey God. So take Kohelet's advice here and resist the urge to get worked up about what the government is doing, even now. He's not saying don't plan. He's not saying ignore all that is going on. He's simply saying that we are to trust him in this situation. Can you do that, Christian? Can you keep your eyes on Christ on a time like this? I'll tell you, you, you cannot do it in your own strength. But we can, because of who Jesus is, approach the throne of grace with confidence to receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. And that brings us to the, to the larger proverbial section of verse 4 to 7 as a whole. I won't read it all again, but I have it there on the screen for you to, to look back at. Again, the principle is pretty straightforward. 
Civil magistrates aren't perfect. They are flawed. They don't always do the right thing. And there is an evil thing that Solomon notes. It is a result of living in a fallen world where evil abounds. And in some cases, justice is not met until the last day. So not only may a ruler act foolishly and rashly, but he may also appoint fools in high places. And he might also fail to recognize greatness and virtue when it is before him. Again, put your trust in Christ and not in money and not in the government. A person must realize that unless their hope is in Christ, they are sure to meet disappointment. Everyone will stand before God. Not a single person ever is exempt from that. And the time to be right with Christ is now. None of this, I'll do it later, I'll put it off, I'm going to do it when I'm ready. No, today is the day of salvation. Now is the hour. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you're a good person and that since you have this good, comfortable life in America, all is well. Some of that is perhaps even slipping away from us right now. But all is not well if you do not have Christ. If you have not repented from your sin and trusted in Jesus, you're not well. It's as if you're sitting in a building that is caught up in flames and you're just sitting there unaware of it. You're not even seeing the flames. You don't smell the smoke. That's what, that's what it is like to be in the kingdom of man where death abounds and there is never any true peace. But Christ is the king of kings. He's the heir of all things. And you enter into his kingdom through faith and faith alone. The, that faith is the result of the new birth, the work of regeneration that the Holy Spirit does to the elect. And so if you're listening today, I would ask you, is your faith in Christ? He, Jesus that is, is a ruler in which no foolishness dwells. And he never turns away a repentant sinner. Now, the next section is somewhat similar to the section we discussed in 5 through 7, but it reads, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time, for strength and not for drunkenness. Now this, this section very much reminds me of the general theme that we have noticed in Ecclesiastes. Think about what this book has been teaching us from chapter 1 and on. We have been learning that sometimes our labor is fruitful, that sometimes we have peace at home, and sometimes we are safe and healthy. And this same book teaches us in those same sometimes when we have bread and wine and the wife of our youth and your children, when we have work that works, we are to enjoy those blessings. We are to praise God for them. But Ecclesiastes also teaches us that those blessings are by no means a guarantee to anyone. What happens to the righteous happens to the wicked. What happens to the wicked happens to the righteous. In fact, Ecclesiastes tells us that we often don't enjoy those blessings. So if our priorities are food and drink and the good things of the earth, those are not proper priorities because those things, sometimes we have them, sometimes we don't. Those things are unstable. They are uncertain things. They cannot be our top priority. Food and drink and, the, and this life here on this earth is not our top priority. So what is it that God points us to in the midst of all these, these maybes and these sometimes and these who knows and these perhaps? In all of that uncertainty, what is it that God points us to that is certain? What is the conclusion of the matter is what we read in the last chapter of this book. What's the priority? It's to fear God and keep the commandments. That is the conclusion of the matter at the end of this book. 
So what is my priority? Is it to get food, the best food, the best job, the best things? No, because none of those things is guaranteed to us in this life. You may get them for a moment and then lose them all of a sudden. What is my priority? It is to fear God and keep the commandments. This doesn't change no matter what our circumstance is. And so you see, think of this, this uh, form, this, um, this theme that we have been seeing in Ecclesiastes. Think of it in light of the passage that we just read. You see, you're not always going to have a good ruler. I'm sure we all have our opinions on our president and on, on former ones. More on that in the last section. But note what Solomon is saying here. There will be times when the king of the land is like a child, when he lacks wisdom, when he makes foolish decisions. There will also be times when the people will be happy. And then in typical proverbial fashion, he poetically gives reasons. So remember the theme of this book. We don't know what we are going to have. None of us do. Will it be a good ruler? Then we may be happy. Will it be a foolish ruler? Then woe is us. But God is the one in charge of these things. Proverbs 2.1 tells us that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. But So what do we do? We fear God and we keep the commandments despite whatever situation we are in. And you know, we have had it pretty good as Americans, have we not? Certainly we're not perfect. We all have our own sins. And America as a nation has some various serious sins and offenses against God. But all things considered, aren't we more like the people of verse 17 rather than verse 16? I'm not, you know, I'm not the most patriotic person by any means, but I'm also not so foolish as to not see the blessing of living here, even here in crazy California, than in any other spot of the world, and especially in comparison to any other country of the world. But how long will it last, friends? How long is this American experiment going to last? The only dynasty, the only dynasty that will last forever is Christ's. Do not be mistaken about that. And people are now talking and they're saying that the world is never going to be the same because of this COVID-19 crisis. America is never going to be the same. Well, they don't know that for sure. Maybe it's the case. Maybe it's not. New revelation is not being given to anyone. If it's true, it's one of those things that we will note historically rather than prophetically. So no one really knows that for sure. In some, in some ways, the world is much different now than it ever has been with the technological advances we have. So it's hard to say what will come from all of this. But as, but as it is, we have seen some things even now in these three and a half weeks that we've been experiencing this. A friend of mine said this recently. He says, but if we haven't seen the truths of this in the last couple of weeks, I don't know what we have seen. And then he, he notes down Psalm 33:10. He says, the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. We've been seeing that, church. And then he says, and I'm praying our churches will come to sing this more than ever. A few verses later in Psalm 33, verse 16. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. 
He is our help and our shield, our refuge, in other words. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. Can you say amen to that psalm, church? I also hope that that is what we will be singing more than ever coming out of this. And so we need to remember to not make living in a good earthly kingdom our priority. Those things come and go at the will of God. Praise God when you have it. Praise God when you do not have it. And do what Ecclesiastes instructs you to do with this life under the sun. Fear God and keep the commandments. You will be, or excuse me, you will not be foolish if you do that. Now let's consider this last portion. It's verse 20 in chapter 10. Again, it says, Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature will tell the matter. So here, Kohelet speaks directly to us, making application himself on foolish and wise behavior. This time, though, it's not on the actions of the ruler. It's on our response or our reaction to the ruler. So remember, he's already set before us that rulers don't always rule well, that they don't always do the right thing. And the tendency, you would think for us, for anyone who is subject under a ruler, especially one who makes foolish decisions, is to just simply let the world know about it, to go immediately to Facebook and then declare our superiority to the world and comment about how stupid and foolish this person in power actually is. You know, if they only had our wisdom, then everything would be much better. How often do we see that? We air out all of our feelings about a person. You know, there's a wise and a foolish way to react to the king and his decrees. So note what the preacher says. He doesn't leave us to figure out the meaning. He says it plainly. He says, It is foolish to even think evil upon the king or the rich, to curse them. This isn't to say that king, that the kings or riches or rich folks are somehow better than the rest of us, although there is at least one commentator that understands it that way. He's, he's simply drawing here on the principle that says that those who have amassed wealth typically have power. And they are people of importance and then influence. And if they have those things, especially in the Hebrew culture, they were looked upon as being favored by God. And just think about the example of the rich young ruler and Jesus and the astonishment of his disciples upon that interaction. The young man inquires of Jesus about salvation. And after the discussion, the rich young ruler ends up walking away sorrowful, Apparently, Jesus makes it much more harder to enter into his kingdom than many evangelists do today. But the reaction of the disciples to the encounter is what stands out to me, at least. Jesus tells them that it is with difficulty that a rich man will enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, just how difficult is it, you ask? Well, Jesus offers more clarification, and he says that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter heaven. And at that, the disciples are astonished. In their culture especially, if you had wealth, it was attached to a blessing from Yahweh. And so their response was, well then, who can be saved? And to which Jesus famously replied, with man it is possible, impossible, but with God, all things are possible. 
So there is, there is a wise way and a foolish way to respond to kings and the wealthy. Solomon has touched on this matter before in the book, and he reduces our actions down to being based upon God's sovereign plan and how God raises up kings, in the same way that Peter and Paul basically say it in the New Testament. Note Ecclesiastes 8, chapter, chapter 8, verse 2 and 4. There Solomon writes, I say, keep the king's commands because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of king of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? You see, the danger is that if you respond in the way that Solomon says is foolish, the ruler may hear it. A bird of the air will carry your secret. Someone could snitch on you, in other words. Certainly that has happened in the course of history. There are certain politicians that if they know you have information against them or if you publicly disagree with them, it will mean trouble for you. Now, again, uh, we need to remember that this is proverbial wisdom. He's, he's making statements that are generally true, but he's not establishing precepts for us here. Remember that it is God who raises up kingdoms. It is God who tears them down for his eschatological purposes. And he often does that through means which require men to act. You may even think of John the Baptist's zeal for biblical morality in his day. He did not approve of the king's actions. And what did it get him? It, was, it got him his head on a silver platter, right? He suffered for righteousness' sake. And the Lord's will be done to God be the glory for that. But even John, it wasn't like his actions were done in a way that was inconsistent with the Christian witness. There's nothing there to make us think that. And when, the, when Peter and Paul wrote their comments about submitting to governments in 1 Peter and then also in Romans, it's not as if those governments that they were writing about were supportive of their faith. So what is the wise way then for us as subjects to relate to the civil magistrate? For that, we turn to something else that the Apostle Paul wrote. It's 1 Timothy chapter 2. Verse 1 through 2 says, First of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Notice the, the apostle doesn't qualify his statement, does he? He doesn't say, well, if you like the ruler's policies, well then do this. Pray for them, intercede for them, offer thanks for them. He doesn't say, well, if this ruler has a profession of faith that is like yours, well, then go ahead and intercede and, and pray for thanks and pray prayers of thanksgiving for him. It's simply, first of all, pray for those in high positions. It's more than what Solomon wrote, whereas he said that we shouldn't curse the one in a high position. It's not simply act neutral. It's not simply, if we have nothing nice to say, then don't say anything at all, like our parents may have taught us. But if we are to maintain a Christian witness and honor God and how we react towards government, then we must, in the first place, be willing to pray for those that are in high positions, to pray for their salvation, to pray that God would use them to have mercy on the church, to pray that they would not be foolish and seek to put themselves above God's law, but rather that they would enforce the laws in submission to God's holy law. Can we do that, church? You know, there is a time when it will become necessary, and there have been times in the past, when it's necessary to, to pray the imprecatory psalms against a wicked ruler. And we must approach that with wisdom and patience, knowing that God is sovereign. But it certainly 
it most certainly comes after we have given ourselves over in serious consideration to what 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2 says. Now, there's one more application that we need to consider in light of verse 20, and then we'll be done. Christ Jesus is the King of kings. He is the Lamb who sits upon the throne, who is worthy of blessing and honor and glory. Hebrews 1.3 reminds us that He, meaning Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by His word of power. After making purification for sins, He sat down. He was done. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. You see, Christ is reigning. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Him. The sphere of His rule covers all things, and yet some live not aware and ultimately in rebellion to Him. And there is no secret that is kept from this King. There is no thought that He does not know. Remember what the psalmist says in Song 139. He says, Even before a word is on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Listen to the wisdom of Matthew Henry here. He says, If there be hazard in secret thoughts and whispers against earthly rulers, what must be the peril from every deed, word, or thought of rebellion against the King of kings and the Lord of lords? He seeth in secret. His ear is ever open. Sinner, curse not this king in thy inmost thought. Your curses cannot affect him, but his curse coming down upon you will sink you to the lowest hell. Are you right with this king? Are your friends and your, your family members right with this king? Remember how it is that, he, that we read of in Galatians, how it is that he obtained this kingdom. Not only can your curses not affect him, as Matthew Henley rightly notes, but the Apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3 that Christ himself redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. You understand that apart from this gracious and kind, loving act of Jesus, that there would be no, not a single person in the kingdom of God, meaning there would be no one redeemed from their sin. There would only be sons of Adam in rejection to Christ's king, kingdom if Jesus didn't take upon himself the curse. And just as, it, just as it is that there is no hiding our sin from him, he knows our innermost thoughts, there is also no way that he will fail to redeem his elect. He knows his church. He knows his sheep. His sheep hear his voice and they come to him and he will never lose them. So take refuge in Christ. Look to Christ. There is no other shelter. As we see our society changing right now, perhaps changing drastically even, Tell your family and your friends about the mercy that is to be found in our King. If nothing else, maybe this is what God intends to come from this crisis. Maybe it is that, maybe it's that He's teaching us to number our days so that we might reach out to our families and our friends and share with them the hope that is found in, in Christ and His gospel. So tell everyone that Christ is King, that He is worthy of worship. He is. He is. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so grateful to you for the mediator that you have given to us in Christ. He is our prophet, our priest, and our king. And we need him every moment, every hour. It is so sweet to trust in you, Jesus. And we pray that you would give to us a zeal for good works that would cause your elect to be drawn in as we 
share your gospel, as we announce it, as we proclaim it and declare it, because we're not ashamed of it. And we know that it is your power unto salvation. So Lord, help us to know how to live in these times. Help us to not be foolish in the way that we respond to the magistrate, knowing that it is you who ultimately sets it up and you are accomplishing your redemptive and eschatological purposes. We are glad to know that that is the case, that your hands are never tied. And so we exalt you and we praise you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.